In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. Alright folks, we are back. Meditations in Molotovs on the Progressive Radio Network. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. And it is Monday, November 7th. Folks, we've got less than 24 hours left to go. And I'm not going to insult anyone's intelligence here on this program. If you listen to this program, you should damn well know who you support. You should have known for months. You should have known before the election even started who you supported, who you were going to support, who you were going to put your vote behind or your effort, your money, the time we've spent on this, what I've referred to in social media as the greatest time suck in human history, 18 months of ads, 18 months of bullshit, 18 months of hearing Donald Trump's voice, 18 months of hearing Hillary Clinton's voice, day after day after day, both of them so goddamn annoying. Ah. So fortunately, this horse race part of our political reality comes to an end tomorrow. Thank fucking Christ. <sighs> so that's over with tomorrow. The problem, of course, is that one of these lunatics, most likely Hillary Clinton, will be the president for the next four to eight years. So if you were tired of hearing Hillary Clinton's voice, if you were tired of hearing Donald Trump's voice, over the last 18 months, well, that's nothing because for the next four to eight years, we are going to have to hear from one of these bozos on a regular basis. Now imagine that, folks. Now imagine. Either Hillary Clinton, most likely Clinton, potentially Donald Trump, but not likely. Hillary Clinton's face will be plastered all over every television set, her voice heard through every radio outlet, podcast, video clip online, YouTube, and so on, for the next four to eight years. Ah, oh. <laughs> It never ends. For people who have been politically active for many decades, I don't know how you've done it. I don't know how you have done it. Well, I guess one of the reasons you've done it is because the economy was so much better than it is today. So that's one reason, you know, so very few. Well, it's interesting. Let's back up. A large section of the people who were involved in, say, the 1968 generation, the 60s, are nowhere to be found today. Many of the people who marched, protested, 
got arrested. They retreated over the last few decades. Yes, yes, we all know about COINTELPRO. At least the people listening to this program do. If you don't, send me some emails and I'll get a guest on and we'll talk about it. But for those who already know about COINTELPRO and the devastating impact it had on radical political movements and individuals, well, that's one part of the story. The other part of the story, of course, is that many millions of people from the 1960s, from that generation, retreated to the suburbs, got their job, two-car garage, family of four, built the picket fence, went to the soccer tournaments on the weekends, you know, eventually broke down and bought the New Balance Velcro shoes, <laughs> you know, and the whole deal. You know, that's that's what people did. So, I mean, let's stop bullshitting ourselves here. You know, for people who want to deny this, I mean, let's just, you know, it's it's better to just come to grips with reality. And the reality is many of the people from that generation retreated to an utterly sort of yuppie lifestyle and culture, an apolitical or non-political, depoliticized context in which these people lived throughout the 1980s, 90s, and even the 2000s. The Bush years really blew the lid off of everything. I think it's hard for people to understand how uneventful and how uninteresting a large portion of the 70s, 80s, and 90s were. Yes, as many of my friends would remind me, of course, what was it, in 99 or 2000, the battle for Seattle, you know, sort of culminating many years of so post-Soviet Union radical activism taking place in the 90s within the context of the World Trade Organization being created, within the context of an ever more powerful international monetary fund, the IMF, the World Bank, sort of at the tip of the globalization trends or globalization from above, as my friend Professor Sipes likes to say. So there were some interesting things that happened. Culturally, musically, there were interesting backlashes and reactions to the Reagan years, to the Reagan and Thatcher years. But in terms of political movements... In terms of people in America being forced to come to grips with a very dark side of American history, a very dark side of our reality in this country, that really didn't happen until 9-11. I mean, 9-11, in, in my mind, well, let's back up again. I would say Bush's election. I mean, how can you bullshit yourself after somebody stole an election? We all know he stole it. We know it. Then people can blame Al Gore all they wish. The fact of the matter is, just like today, if Trump wins, if Trump wins tomorrow, it won't be because of the left. The left is so small. It's so marginalized, lacking power. 
believe me, I know. I've spent the last 10 years of my life working with and in and through the left, largely. And by left, very clear distinction, very easy distinction for me to make would be people who openly oppose living in a capitalist system. Because there's all kinds of other, like libertarians would be for certain civil liberties, social rights, some social democrats, socialists, and so on would be for, say, a strong state apparatus that would provide uh, health care, education, and so on. My anarchist friends who are against the state. So for me, you can't couldn't classify a leftist as saying, well, he believes in the state, or he believes in this kind of a state, or he believes in this kind of a economic system. No, but what I could say is that, or what I would say, at least the easiest way for me to identify someone who's on the left is that they are opposed to capitalism. That at the at the very core, at their very root, they know that we have to come up with a different system to live under. But then again, there's also indigenous people, environmentalists who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves on the left, but who also understand, maybe through a different scope and for different reasons, that we can't live in a capitalist society because in a capitalist system, in a capitalist society, everything is a commodity. And when everything becomes commodified, not just human beings and our labor and resources, but when the planet, when the air, the water, the earth becomes a commodity, we destroy ourselves and the earth and everything else that's living on the planet. We see the consequences of that today. My generation will live with the potential or actual consequences of what's, you know, many, many decades of environmental devastation. Okay. All that aside, let's get back to the main point. And the main point is, well, first of all, let's not blame Al Gore. Let's not blame the Jill Stein supporters. Let's not blame the folks who are out there day in and day out working their asses off to create change. Okay, if the Democratic Party would stop nominating milquetoast candidates like Al Gore, John Kerry, and Hillary Clinton, they would probably have an easy time beating candidates like George W. Bush and Donald Trump. Of course, then some would argue that Al Gore did win. So in any case, I think that period in American history was very significant for many generations. Not only for the baby boomers who might have been active or weren't active during the 1960s and early 70s, sort of woke them up, rattled their cage, people who maybe walked away from doing activist work, came back into the fold during the Bush years. Not only was the office of the presidency stolen, bringing into question the entire electoral system, 
I would argue there's been a lack of confidence in the system since then, whether conscious or subconscious for many, many Americans. Then 9-11 happens. So less than a year after the fiasco of the 2000 election, 9-11 happens. And if anyone was innocent before then, or if anyone was attempting to live a naive sort of American life prior to that period, I would argue that for many people, that naivety was lost. And then, of course, nonstop wars, scandals, corruption, attacks on civil liberties, the stripping of rights became the norm. And some people fought back, no doubt. Of course, the largest protests in the history of humanity took place prior to the war in Iraq. But I think a large number of us, particularly kids who were my age or younger, now I'm 32, that was 18 in 2002. 17 when the Twin Towers collapsed. Well, that moment for my generation became sort of the seminal moment of our young adult lives. Everyone who's my age or older, of course, remembers where they were, even people who were younger than I was at the time remember where they were on that day. But there are only a few of us, less than 1% of the American society, the American population, whose lives were forever altered by that day. And that's not including the people who lost relatives, friends, and so on. But for those of us who joined the military after that, and were sent to one of the immoral and horrific illegal wars that George W. Bush and company launched after 9-11. The first, of course, being in Afghanistan, the second being in Iraq, where I was sent. And I think most people who are our age... And you see this reflected in Donald Trump's rhetoric around the war in Iraq. You see this reflected in Bernie Sanders' positions and rhetoric around the war in Iraq and even the position that Hillary Clinton has had to take even though she voted for the illegal and immoral war in Iraq. But has since, of course, changed her tune because public opinion has changed dramatically. So most people now realize that the war was complete bullshit. This, of course, for me is quite amazing because (laughs) 
we spent so many of our days, so much of our time, so many hours and years of our life, of our lives protesting that war when we returned from the war only to be told by large swaths of the American population that we were unpatriotic pieces of shit who should either, quote, love it or leave it. That was the attitude 10 years ago, 13 years ago. People forget 15 years ago when moronic Americans were running around after 9-11 beating up Sikhs because they don't know the difference. Not that it would matter, of course, not that people should be running around beating up Muslims, but these people are so stupid they don't even know the difference. So some of that darkness, some of that darkness that was lost, that was overlooked in the 1980s and in the 1990s started to creep its ugly little head up after 2000. And one. So not only did we have an illegitimate president in office when the towers collapsed, when the Pentagon was hit, but then the reaction, not just on behalf of the Bush administration, but the reaction of most Americans tying yellow ribbons to their houses, flying flags, sort of base level moronic nonsense appealing to a very dark nature not only maybe a human nature and it was all humans have this within us this horrific ability to attach ourselves to these symbols these ideas these ideologies and to quite literally be willing to kill for those ideas symbols and ideologies but most notably of course here the United States, the world's last remaining empire, where we have over a thousand military bases, people operating in almost virtually every country in the world, spending almost a trillion dollars a year, over a trillion dollars a year if you include the nukes. All of that was laid to bear during the Bush years. And a great level of cynicism arose. But there were still many, many, many Americans who defended Bush. And maybe not just so much, not so much maybe because they loved Bush as a person. But I think because a lot of Americans, particularly white Americans, saw saw portions of themselves within Bush. If you remember back during 2004 campaign against Kerry, the Bush campaign was pushing this idea, the Republicans, the right-wing media was pushing this idea that George W. would be the guy you'd rather go out and have a beer with, as if that matters for who we should be electing to the highest office in the United States. There's plenty of people I enjoy having a drink with. Hell, there's people today I enjoy having a drink with. People I wouldn't trust changing my fucking oil. But we're going to trust somebody to the presidency because 
he's somebody or she is someone I can imagine having a beer with. So this is the level of, this is sort of the level of politics that was going on in 2004. And then, of course, accusing anyone, including John Kerry, which is absurd because he's sort of the quintessential elitist voice for the U.S. empire, especially from the liberal side. Accusing him of being anti-American or accusing him of being a traitor or not American enough or not patriotic enough, of course. And then any of us activists, any of the anti-war activists who were out in the street protesting during those years, we were traitors, unpatriotic, siding with the terrorists. Oh, yeah, folks. Oh, yeah. We, we should remember all of that because people want to forget all of that, but there's no way to understand where we are today unless we understand that history. And of course, people were bamboozled then in 2007 when a certain someone. Named Barack Obama came on the political, the national, I guess Obama came on the national political scene during the Democratic National Convention in 2004 when he gave his famous speech about a purple America, which in the end really explains Obama's objectivist ideology. It's interesting if you think of it this way. Nonetheless, in 2007, when Obama ran a horrifically, well, when the Clintons ran a horrifically racist campaign against Obama during the 2000, people forget that as well. I find that to be really precious for the Democrats and liberals and Clinton supporters out there today who want to forget the uber racist campaign that was ran against Obama in 2007. All that aside, there was a certain level of hope that he t uh, tapped into. You know, Obama tapped into this, this urge people had for something better. Something better than the eight years of craziness we had, corruption, under Bush. But people didn't really pay attention to what Obama was saying. If they paid attention, they would have heard him say that he was going to escalate the war in Afghanistan. If they paid attention, they would have heard him say that he was going to surround himself with the most establishment political figures imaginable. Now, all that was missed. by most people who supported Obama, especially those today who say they are so disappointed in him. There is nothing, my friends, to be disappointed about. This figure, just like Hillary Clinton, is going to do exactly what I expect them to do. This is the same now for Hillary Clinton. So let's get this through our heads. So when, not if, when Hillary Clinton signs 
a horrific piece of legislation. Let's pretend like we've been here before. Let's pretend like we've learned something over the last eight years. Let's pretend like we know what to do as opposed to the four to six years it took for most progressives to pull their heads out of their asses under the Obama administration. Where was everyone for the first six years under Obama? Where were the unions? Where were the environmentalists? Where were the activists? When Obama was deporting more people in his first four years than Bush deported in his eight years. Of course, largely Latin American immigrants and refugees. Or what should be considered, people who should be considered refugees, but because of legalities are not. Because of language. And political inertia. And interests, geopolitical interests, and so on. Where, where, where was everyone? Where was everyone as Obama bombed seven nations in the last eight years? You know, I, the good... The good thing, I would say, is that Hillary Clinton isn't going to get such a grace period. In fact, I would argue that if or when Hillary Clinton takes office, she will experience more protests and more pressure from the left than any president since potentially Richard Nixon. Hillary is on a very short leash when it comes to progressives, even some of her liberal supporters, diehard Democrats, but especially progressives in the left. A very short leash. And she will be under intense pressure from both Bernie supporters and the left the moment she takes office. So this, in my thinking, is a positive development because it really took, if people want to be honest, it really took at least, I would say, six years for liberal writers, people in the liberal media, progressives, even a lot of the left, union members, many people in the black community, Latino political organizers, to step out and to start openly and honestly criticizing this president. The same, of course, will not, this will not be the case for Hillary Clinton. Be much different. And I think that's a good thing. Of course, where this could be extremely negative for a lot of Americans is that the right wing the Republicans have already threatened to not work with Clinton on anything that would be deemed progressive. So there's that. So it's hard to be, you know, when someone asked me, what are my reflections on this election cycle? You know, the, the obvious, the good, the bad, the ugly. 
I have to say that one of the main reflections that I have, unfortunately, which, I mean, it makes me sad to say this. I take no joy in saying this. But I, barring a miracle in the true sense of the word, I don't see the next four years being any more. And in fact, I see it being much I don't see the next four years being any more productive than the last four years. And in fact, I would see the next four years being much less productive, if you could even imagine that. I don't expect anything to get passed other than potentially bad legislation. And that's because Hillary Clinton is essentially a Republican from the 1970s. Her policies, her political ideology, her worldview, indistinguishable from Gerald Ford. So, even if things do get passed, even if legislation does get passed, if executive orders are signed, you can bet your ass that they will be no good for the planet, no good for poor people, and no good for working class people. You can guarantee that. John McCain has already threatened that they won't even allow her. Clinton. To nominate a Supreme Court justice. Said there's no way they're going to confirm anyone that she nominates. So that's that. I mean, so I mean, anyone who's sitting here thinking, you know, after this election, everything is just good. We're, you know, this we're just going to go back to some mythical days of when things were okay and everyone just got along, which never existed to begin with. But people have this absurd view of what the the past was like. Yes, it is true that at a legislative level, level things have become much more toxic. But that, in my thinking, has less to do with just the political system as such as it does with any number of things that are happening in the world right now, including information. I'm thinking here about the Internet. I've talked about this in previous programs, and I've written about this in the past as well. I wrote an article years ago for Zenet about the wild views that Americans have. I actually am going to try and pull this up. Let me see if I could find this. Let's see if I could find this. But this, these are views on ghosts, um, UFOs, uh, a number of sort of out there beliefs that Americans have, ideas that Americans have. Let's see here. But this, you know, these things, these wild views on any number, let's see here, any number of issues are widely represented in American society. 
So here we go. Let me let me read a couple of these. After 100 plus years, I'm quoting from the article. This is an article I wrote back in October 12th of 2014, so over two years ago now, for ZNet called American Insanity, God, UFOs, Ghosts, ISIS, and Climate Change. After 100 plus years of universal public education, discoveries in science, and political reforms, U.S. citizens continue to hold disproportionately skeptical views of science. So Americans just don't believe in science. For instance, Gallup's beliefs and values survey shows, quote, more than four in ten Americans continue to believe that God created humans in their present form 10,000 years ago, a view that has changed little over the past three decades. Half of Americans believe humans evolved, with the majority saying these I'm sorry, with the majority of these saying God guided the evolutionary process. So let me say that again. 40, more than 40% of Americans today believe that God created humans in their present form 10,000 years ago. This view has changed very little over the last three decades. Half of Americans believe in evolution the majority of these say that God guided the evolutionary process. These numbers, when compared with other Western nations, are off the charts. Now, Americans hold equally idiotic convictions about UFOs. According to ABC News, 36% of Americans, about 80 million people, believe UFOs exist, and a tenth believe they have spotted one, a National Geographic poll shows. Additionally, the study reveals that 55% of Americans believe, quote, men in black style agents threaten people who report UFO sightings. And over 75% of Americans assume aliens have visited planet Earth. Now, I don't know where this comes from. Someone like Ronald Wright, an anthro Canadian anthropologist whose work I've followed and enjoyed for many years now, wrote a book years ago called What is America? Where he essentially argues that you have this clash between Enlightenment era values science, democratic political reforms, rational and logical philosophical thought, ways of looking at the planet, clashing with what he calls a frontiersman mentality. But these are people who are largely frontiersmen heading out into the supposed great unknown, slaughtering Indians, taking land, believing in these antiquated ideologies and thoughts, spiritual thoughts, religious traditions, clashing with the urban elite or what was perceived to be the urban elite, practicing establishment, or I'm sorry, enlightenment era values.
But what do we do? Or how do we interact with people who, a population that has historically had crazy views, as I'm mentioning here. So 36% of Americans, about 80 million people believe that UFOs exist. A tenth of them think they've seen one, according to the National Geographic poll. And 55% of Americans believe that, quote, men in black style agents threaten people who report UFO sightings. 75% of Americans assume aliens have visited planet Earth. You know, again, is this... Oh, here you go. Let me finish here with this article. In like manner, a Huffington Post YouGov poll reveals that 45% of Americans suppose, quote, ghosts or spirits of dead people can come back in certain places and situations. Moreover, the poll concludes that over 28% of Americans simultaneously suspect they have been in the presence of ghosts during some point in their lives. Americans not only live in a very irrational society, they live in an extremely scared society, with fears ranging from immigrants and young black men to biblical prophecies describing the end times. Consequently, when faced with supposed terror threats, Americans react predictably to the nonstop propaganda machine of mainstream news reports, videos, and commentary. To illustrate, last month NBC News reported that Americans are scared of ISIS as they were are as scared of ISIS as they were in the wake of 9-11. Even more, the poll shows 61% of Americans agreed at that time that, quote, the United States taking military action against ISIS in the United, is in the United States' interests versus 13% who don't think it is. So what sort of fundamental lessons have Americans learned since 9-11? In short, none. The ability of the mainstream press to ignite fear, rage, and concern within American society is truly an magnificent achievement on behalf of the ruling class. Of course, American fear has a long history ranging from the Red Scare to Y2K. On the other hand, since 9-11, Americans have been increasingly bombarded with nonstop reports, documentaries, newscasts, Hollywood films, books, magazine articles, and radio broadcasts focused on international terrorism. Undoubtedly, the collective psychological effect has been ruinous. One can imagine that the increased sophistication and decentralization of communications technologies provide Americans with alternative media sources. But then how does one explain the fact that Americans are as scared today as they were in the aftermath of 9-11? Do Americans not have more media options today than they did in 2001? And what's even more interesting is the fact that this time it only took a couple of beheading videos to spark American intervention. Whereas 9-11 involved the collapse of the Twin Towers, an attack on the Pentagon, and a downed aircraft in Pennsylvania, all told, resulting in the deaths of over 3,000 people. So in the most powerful society, just for those who are interested, that's an article I wrote, portions of an article that I wrote back in October of 2014, titled American Insanity. God, UFOs, ghosts, ISIS, and climate change. That was for ZNet, Z Communications. 
So all that being said, in the most powerful empire in the history of the world, in the most wealthy society in the history of the world, we have one of the most undereducated, illogical, and superstitious populations on the planet. And that's after a hundred years of public education. None of this is getting better with the internet. So for those people out there who take these very simplistic views, like, oh, you know, the younger generation, it's going to be fine with the younger generation. The younger generation is going to figure it all out. And they're going to figure it all out because they've got science on their side and they've got technology and the internet on their side. I'm sorry to break it to you, but that's not the case. It never was. It never is. These mediums, these tools can be used in very productive ways. They can also be used to promote and select and maybe eventually elect someone like Donald Trump. And while he may be the last gasp of white supremacy, at least in its old form of authoritarianism and bombastic political leaders and billionaires and so on, while that may be sort of an antiquated political symbol for the right, someone like Donald Trump, we face equally destructive and or greater threats than Donald Trump in the future. Primarily, one of the threats we face is a lack of alternatives a lack of alternatives to the status quo and a lack of alternatives to older ideas that modern leftists want to rehash. So I would argue that if you're going to call your movement a socialist movement, it's on some level already doomed to failure. If you're going to call your movement a communist or an anarchist movement, I would argue it's already on some level doomed to failure. One of the great things about being a human being is the ability to be creative. This, to me, and not only to me, but to the millions of trained professionals around the world who study these kinds of things, basically would argue that that is the most unique aspect of being a human being. Our extremely complex development of language and communications, but also our ability to create. So... With that being said, why are people looking looking to harken back to some old form of doing things? Whether they whether you call it libertarianism or communism or socialism or anarchism or volunteerism or social democracy or democratic socialism, we've heard it all before. It's been tried to varying degrees with varying success and largely failure. We see where we're at. Take an honest assessment of this. We need ideas. 
I don't see those ideas being developed really anywhere. And part of that problem, part of the problem is, part of the reason that that's not happening is that we are so harsh with one another. So when someone does propose an alternative idea, like, hey, what would be an alternative to the current economic system? People jump all over each other. If someone proposes an alternative, right away someone's response is, well, that wouldn't work because instead of, well, hey, there's part of those ideas that I enjoy. Like, as I was mentioning with socialism or any of this, there's parts of socialism I enjoy. There's parts of communist ideology I enjoy. I can understand values I can adhere to or identify with. Same is true with libertarianism. Same is true with conservatism, although to a lesser degree. Same is true of liberalism. Same is true of anarchism. Same is true of environmentalism. If, of course, you could even really identify any kind of singular ideology that would be called environmentalism. Nonetheless, I think people get the point. I think there are positive aspects to take from any number of political ideologies. It's always been the case. But we should be encouraging each other to develop these ideas. Because if we keep running in circles, if we keep doing, if you're listening to this and you're saying to yourself, well, I've been doing X, Y, or Z over the last 4, 8, 10, 20 years, and I'm just going to keep my nose down and stick to the grindstone, and I'm just going to keep turning out whatever it may be, articles, events, fundraisers, songs, paintings. If, if all of us, including myself, everyone, if we are not willing to look in the mirror and say, okay, what is working, what's not working, am I developing and becoming more productive individually, but then also... And are we becoming more productive collectively? If the answer is no to that, or if the answer is yes, however, we would like to be even more productive, we'd like to be even more effective, we would like to grow even more than we have, then we need to change what it is we're doing. I think the Dakota Pipeline is a good example of this. Of course, the people who are out there deserve our support. Of course, they deserve our solidarity at this moment. While they're under attack from a militarized police state, of course. That goes without saying. However, at the same time, We have to have a conversation about what it is we are trying to do on a broader scale. Yes, we can have events to stop destructive pipelines. But what are we trying to do? Are we trying to stop one pipeline? Are we trying to do more than to stop just that one pipeline, but we don't have the capacity to do that? Are we simply trying to redirect the pipeline? which is a whole nother conversation that I think people need to be having right now. Some say that it's a strategic move, that if we, if people can stop the pipeline as far as I can understand it, or if they can get the company to reroute it, it will simply become too expensive. But then if we use that kind of a method to, to win this kind of a campaign, if we say, okay, 
let's use this little trick and say, hey, we don't want to stop the pipeline. We just want to reroute it knowing that the company, knowing that the project will become too expensive for the company to continue. What happens in the future when we are involved with a similar project and we try and use a similar tactic and we say, hey, we're going to reroute this pipeline. And they say, well, that's fine. We have the money to do that. In fact, what happens when companies start to say, you know what, we want to work with environmentalists. See, if I, if I were in these corporations, I would be so much smarter than these people. I'd be so much more, I guess, evil. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand who the hell they have working for them. But instead of open confrontation, and I think part of this is because the, these older folks who do run these institutions, who do sit on these boards of directors and so on, I think are the people who don't spend much time on the internet. They don't see how all of this information, how all of these images are getting out there because, you know, they're still watching the mainstream news cable coverage. So when they see something, they go, oh, well, you know, they just two minute clip, no big deal. Not knowing that, say, millions of people on the internet through YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and so on are, are watching in real time what's happening. Okay, so that that aside... At some point, these companies are going to work with environmentalists. They're going to bring people to the table and they're going to say, you know what? We don't want to build destructive pipelines. We want to build state-of-the-art pipelines. We want to build the best pipelines humanly imaginable. And we will go through a rigorous regulation process and we'll bring in the most green engineers and environmentally friendly uh, scientists and engineers and so on who will develop pipelines that will be up to the standards of these new young envir liberal environmentalists who, of course, don't want to take anyone's jobs. My God, no. We just want everyone to be happy and we want to continue to do exactly what we're doing right now, have a hyper-exploitative ideology when it comes to the environment, have a hyper-exploitative ideology and political and education, and, I'm sorry, economic system in place but we just want to do it with green energy. Now, these are the kinds of things we need to be talking about after the election. What are people actually fighting for? What are we looking for? Do we just want to stop tar sands pipelines? Or are we going to be cool with miners blasting the side of mountains or going to South America or Africa in search of rare earth minerals it will take to build the millions upon millions of windmills, turbines, and solar panels that it would take to actually power this country with people living at the standard of living that they're living at right now. So anyone who's out there who thinks, oh, we're just going to be able to do exactly what we're doing right now, we're just going to do it with green energy, you're out of your mind. Not only are you out of your mind, but fortunately you're in for a big surprise. Because not only is that not the case, it's, in my thinking, one of the biggest challenges we have here. And that is to oppose real simplistic easy answers that I keep hearing from people. And I think Jill Stein and the Green Party folks are guilty of this, and I definitely think the Bernie folks are. I mean, Jill Stein probably even more so than the Bernie folks, but the Bernie folks are also guilty of this. Just a very simplistic worldview of, well, we'll just be like the Nordic countries. Okay, sure, if that's a first step, then by all means, let's do it. You know, if we 
for people who have been listening to this program, for people who have been reading my my work for some time now. Yes, I supported Bernie. Yes, I think part of it was useful. Yes, I also think we should be critical of the campaign. I think we should be critical of how we spent our time. But there was a very simplistic view. I mean, that was one of the first critiques I had going to Bernie events, talking with people. I didn't find many people to have that interesting of things to say. Is that because they're not capable of having interesting things to say? Of course not. That's because people don't cultivate that at all. It's not encouraged in society, in school, at your job place. It's not encouraged in political movements. This, you know, people have, in fact, a lot of people would argue you're discouraged from thinking critically or from thinking creatively or for trying to come up with independent thoughts and ideas. And so that would be, in my thinking, one of the major challenges we face is to encourage each other to think of alternatives and to be critical, to be critical of our so-called leaders in these political movements, but to also be critical of ourselves and to be critical of each other constructively, no doubt, but critical always. Man, all that being said, I didn't even get to anything on my dry erase board today. So as I've talked about before, you know, I usually sit down, I'll write a ton of things on my dry erase board, some bullet point ideas, some reflections, topics I want to get to. I had about eight or nine things here listed. I did not get to many of them. Nonetheless, we all know what we're doing tomorrow. Tomorrow's not a big deal. Either way, in my opinion. The media is making this out to be a bigger deal than it is. Of course, this has been more profitable for them than any other industry, of course. The media has benefited from this election more than anyone else. The corporate media. So anyway, people know what they're going to do tomorrow. Next steps for 2017. That's what we're going to be talking about next week. We're going to have a couple of organizers and some activists on. We'll talk about those ideas with them. Let's see what kind of things they have in store for the next president. And of course... Ideas and tactics and strategies will change depending on who it is that takes office in January, depending on who it is that wins tomorrow. And hopefully this shit show of an election will be over tomorrow evening. I hope all of you are ready. I hope you have your food ready, your beer, your tobacco, whatever else it is that you smoke, whatever it is, whatever else it is that you're into that's going to keep you sane through the day tomorrow. But just know that it's over with for now. And the most important conversations people should be having with each other at this point, at this stage in the game, is what are we going to do after the election is over? That's when the real work begins. That's when the real struggle begins. And of course, those things will change, as I mentioned earlier, depending on who takes office. But regardless, we're going to need more and more people to be engaged with these processes. We need more and more people to volunteer their time. And for those who have already been volunteering their time and for those who have already been putting in the effort, we need you to be able to do this in a sustainable way. So if that means you have to take a break from things, if that means you have to take a break for the winter, to take a break for the holidays, if you have to step away for uh, several months, if you have to step away for a year, I don't care because... We need everyone in this struggle for the rest of their lives. And 
I think as time goes on, more and more people who aren't involved are going to start seeing that they actually have to be involved for things to change, that no one is going to do this for us, that this is quite literally up to us. So we could come up with a million and a half excuses why we should quit. We could come up with a million and a half excuses why we shouldn't continue doing this kind of work. But at the end of the day, we have to come to our conclusion, come to our senses, and come to the conclusion that this work is absolutely essential. So it's a pleasure to speak with you again this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Good luck tomorrow. Stay sane. Stay safe. This is Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find us every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. 